Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. I love doing these episodes. I look forward to every one of them. Um, today in particular, um, as I said before in other episodes, sometimes I think I launched a podcast just to be able to talk to my friends publicly, um, such as the case with today's guest, um, Heather Eastman. Heather is, um, is a, a polymath. She's a, extremely talented at many things. Right now, she works primarily as a writer and an editor, but I first met Heather, um, well, in a different story, which I'll tell you in a minute. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you and I, you and I met, I think in 2012 when I was in Boise and you were my trainer for about, I think for two years, I think it was 2012 to 2014 when I moved, I think you were my trainer when I moved, but I can't re quite remember, but anyway, and we, we had, um, you know, a lot of simpatico, a lot of things that we, um, that we connected over and just life philosophies. And, um, you know, you helped me, helped me with my, my, you know, getting in shape and I helped you with your brand and it was a nice symbiotic friendship. And, um, but you are a, uh, key, uh, figure in my first spiritual awakening. So we were working out at the gym, Lena, my former partner was with me and we were working out at the gym off of state street. Um, and, um, I was, I was, I was doing something bench press or something. And I, and I got up and I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw, um, a lion's head in the mirror looking back at me. And th there was something that was part of that catalyst because er, bef at weigh in, you, you did your measurements and you, you said you measured my stomach and you're like, you've lost like two inches, dude. And I look at you there, there's that mirror in the office. And I looked at myself and I was like, I looked myself in the eye and that was started to crack something open. And then this moment happened. And I remember coming back over and Lena saying, what's wrong? And I said, nothing's wrong. I just, something's happened. And that was a, that led to um, this, this journey of a few months later, I met my business partner, Emily, and then we, then we moved to Austin and, and, you know, um, this, this like complete cracking open of what I thought, who I thought I was happened in that gym with, well, you were being my trainer. How awesome is that? That's totally awesome. I love hearing that. So, um, so you, the reason I wanted to have you on is um, I think you're one of the most resilient people I know. And sometimes when you tell people that they're resilient, that they don't necessarily take it as a compliment, but I hope you do. <laughs> uh, I do. I do. But I understand why, why people wouldn't take it as a yes, compliment. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, you'll get through this. It's like, I don't want to get through this. This sucks, but you've been through a lot. Um, I think that a lot of people assume if someone is, attractive and fit and smart and driven that they don't have struggles and they don't get broken. And um, I have the three questions we're both going to answer, but I, I wanted to kind of get your perspective on what it means to be broken or broken open, um, because that's something we both experienced in our lifetimes. So what does that mean to you? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm going to take the second version of that, what it means to be broken open. Um, and without going too much into too much detail into where I was at this point, but I reached a very, very low point. It was around 2010. I had divorced my first husband and was kind of, you know, mid-20s, just in this place where I was renting rooms from 
friends, kind of bouncing around, no direction in my life. And I, I got some, some personal issues led me to, um, basically I, I found myself sitting on a couch, finishing my third bottle of wine for that evening with the unintentional intention of, of just kind of letting it slip me away. And I remember distinctly, I had a moment where I realized, oh no, I might, I might've succeeded. And I couldn't even stand up. So I had to drag myself across the floor to the bathroom and, uh, and proceed to evacuate, like just make myself throw up, get rid of all the wine that I had just drank. Because I knew if I, ha if I didn't do that, I was gonna poison myself and die. I was gonna succeed in that attempt. And I'll never forget that feeling of something deep inside me, you know, feeling so broken, so down, so ready to end it all. But that moment when that little spark inside me said, okay, we're getting across the room. Mm. And there was no stopping that spark. There was no stopping that drive. I was getting across the room, come hell or high water. I was getting there. I was going to save myself. Mm. And that's the lowest point in my life. And I've never been that low since. And I, you know, I know that my low point might not be the same as someone else's low point, but every time life gets challenging, every time I'm running on two hours of sleep, every time I feel broken down or defeated or just overwhelmed by all the things in life. I remember that feeling when the only thing that mattered was to drag myself across the floor mm -hmm. and save my life. Mm -hmm. And so this just got really deep, really fast, but essentially that's where some of my resiliency comes from is, you know, mm -hmm. when people say, well, are, are you so, are you sad? Are you going to do something? Are you going to hurt yourself? No, because I already know what hurting myself feels like and I don't want to go there. Right. Yeah. I think that, there's a moment, and I've had several of these, where you're broken open and what you see is your own pricelessness. Um, if you let yourself be broken in the process, something happens in, in where you, you sort of see what God sees or the universe. You're, you're like, wait a minute, I am fucking awesome. What am I, you know, that I have, you can't, I'm unbreakable. And I think of David Goggins book, you, uh, Can't Break Me, is kind of around this idea of we, we, we need to put ourselves in situations where we are broken open. And the only way to do that is just to keep getting back up and taking risks and whatnot. And I would so much rather deal with the pain of being broken than the numbness of being numb, you know, that as far as pain as suffering goes. Um, so that kind of is the lead into the first question then that we're, we're both going to answer each of these three questions is, what is the most difficult obstacle you've had to overcome? You may have just told the story. Maybe that <laughs> Actually, no, I have a new difficult obstacle. So I just turned 38 and my entire life, you know, I've been a good student. I've done very well. I've, I've been successful, but I've suffered under this pressing burden that I'm working so much harder than everyone else or that it's not, it's not easy for me. It might look easy, but it's not. I work twice or three times harder than anyone else I know. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of, because my experience was my experience and I didn't know any better, I just assumed that, okay, well, I guess that's just how my life is. And then at the age of 37, so just a few months ago, I was diagnosed with ADHD and a fairly severe ADHD mm -hmm. um, to the point where I'm shocked 
that I've gotten this far in life without help or medication. Yeah. And at, the more I dig into it, the more I'm like, holy crap, without even knowing it, I've been creating little things like every morning as a grown, a grown adult for most of my life, I've had to set a timer to remind myself to leave for work. Mm-hmm. I thought this was normal because if I didn't, I'd forget mm-hmm. to leave. I'd get distracted and I'd go. And only when I realized the way my brain works and, and what I'm up against in terms of executive function, not quite firing the way it should, did I realize, holy crap, I had to come up with a, a coping mechanism all by myself with no help. And I did. Mm-hmm. And so that's my that's been my biggest challenge. And so this year has been incredible just understanding and having an answer for why. Yeah. So beautifully serendipitous. I My essay for this week, which I'm recording this on the 14th of April, um, is eight things you may not know about ADHD. Um, I was diagnosed in 2020. Um, I, if you haven't read it yet, I highly, highly recommend, recommend the book Driven. I'm recommending it to you, Heather, but also anybody else. And I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I actually was on, I had the author Doug Brackman on my podcast um, and he's, his episode drops on Saturday. And then I was on his podcast today, you know, cause that's how it works. We get to be on each other's podcast now. And um, this is a whole topic of ADHD unto itself, but it's an interesting thing that you're, that you're a big, is an obstacle that you've had to overcome because it's somewhat related to mine is everybody I know that has, not everybody that I know that has anxiety has ADHD, but everybody I know that has ADHD deals with anxiety. And I've been through some shit like, you know, a, vi- a violent childhood and um, crazy accidents. And um, then, you know, emotional stuff when Lena came out as gay and our marriage ended and, you know, the all, I mean, lots of things, a lot of spiritual trauma from growing up in a fundamentalist church and blah, blah, blah. And, but the hardest thing has been to give myself to, 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 to take on anxiety with self-compassion. And the, I, a friend of mine, who's a coach, uh, she said, you don't treat it like a wolf, treat it like an orphan. And that changed everything for me. Now it's still an obstacle. I have to have systems in place to deal with it. I have a, uh, with my partner, Virginia, I have a, a yellow, orange, red spectrum of anxiety, which is all related to ADHD and if, and being able to regulate my environment. Um, um, the, all, all the other traits of ADHD, I kind of enjoy, you know, oh, being a and, you know, and I don't mind feeling different than everybody else. I felt that way my whole life and, um, you know, stimming or like fidgeting. I don't, you know, whatever. I don't have the time thing. Um, I have the other one. So some of us with ADHD, we know, always know what time it is. So, um, so that's, that's interesting. That's um, a big one for me is the time issue. Um, the impulsivity is one that I actually enjoy as a side effect uh-huh. because it's, it's led me to travel all around the world. Right. You know, I, um, I had a friend in 2012 say, Hey, I'm going to South Africa. Want to come? And again, like, you know, mid twenties, I think tickets were $2,200 and I had $2,400 in my bank account. So I'm like, perfect. I have yeah. just enough. That's awesome. Let's do this. Yeah. I, I got, you know, I got married when I was 18. We had Logan when I was 22 and I had the impulsivity, but I did not have the container or means to be impulsive. I think, um, I, you know, but now I have to regulate it because I, I can be overly impulsive, especially related to um 
have to I have to discern the difference between conviction and impulse. Or let me put it that way. So sometimes your heart tells you to do something. That's and and sometimes it's just impulse, and especially related to, you know, food and things like that. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, because if you ask me what drives me, it's not impulse. Impulse doesn't drive me. Impulse distracts me. But um, definitely, what drives me what what drives me is just loving and enjoying other people. Yeah, I really do. Like as as much fun as it is to look at the memes of like, I don't want to go out there today. It's too peopley out there. Yeah. And I am for sure an introvert, hundred yeah. percent. But I'm an extroverted introvert, which means that I can go out and and interact with and enjoy people. And and I just I in addition to discovering my diagnosis this year, um, a friend of mine also gifted me with the observation of my superpower. And he said, "You are the flirtiest person I have ever met." <laughs> and I I love that I get to tell you this because I think you understand. You spend enough time around me. And it, it can be incredibly detrimental when you're trying to form romantic relationships because so many, so many partners are not comfortable with that kind of openness and and just that that gregarious nature of wanting to just interact with people and make other people feel good. And flirting is such an easy way to do that. You're building someone up. The problem is so many people think it's literal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have to say, no, 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 it's a catch and release program. We're just, we're playing. And then, yeah, yeah you know, I, I... I, I know exactly what you mean. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's funny dudes too, that like, there's this, it's an old story, but when a woman, when a man smiles at a woman, she thinks, Oh, he's nice. When a woman smiles at a man, he thinks she wants to have sex with me. You know, like that's, I mean, that's a little overly basic, but it's not that far off from the truth, I think. And um, yeah, there's that whole topic of, is it possible to be friends with someone you're actually attracted to? Um you know, we can get into that maybe at another time because that's it's a fascinating topic. Just the human dynamic is, you know, of between people. Um, so my next question that we're going to kick around is, um, so it's kind of an obvious question, but I'm super curious about your answer. Is how does mindset affect or contribute to how you overcome obstacles? Well, going back to that day, dragging myself or that night, dragging myself across the floor. My mindset is, you only fail if you don't give up. Um, but more specifically to how I interact with the world and how I get things done and how I'm able to have, you know, four different jobs going simultaneously is I'm a person who does what I say I'm going to do. And mm -hmm. when you study someone who like, let's say, you know, they've overcome addiction, they've given up smoking, they've given up drinking. It's not about saying, I'm not going to do a thing anymore. It's about making the decision to be the person who doesn't do the thing or vice mm -hmm. versa with fitness. You know, years ago when I was just starting out as a trainer, I was yo-yoing all the time. I, I had a, a 20 pound fluctuation in my weight from year to year. And I finally just decided, look, my livelihood is dependent on me staying svelte, me looking, looking the part of a personal trainer. You know, people mm -hmm. don't hire a trainer that doesn't look like she's fit. And mm -hmm. so I decided, okay, from now on, I am a fit person. Mm -hmm. And all decisions I make from here on out yes. are the decisions a fit person makes. Yes. I love that. Um, again, from the book Driven, Doug, the author, talks in there about it's not who we are, it's what we are. Because who can change dramatically? 
but what we are um, is also fluid, but it's much more of an identifier. And it, and it goes to that um, future self, kind of the Jungian model of future self or um, uh, aspired self. And, you know, for me, it's been as I am, I am a conscious man. I'm a conscious man that does frequently unconscious things, but I always return to, I'm a conscious man. I will operate from my higher self. I will slip into lower self behaviors because I'm a human and I will give myself grace and I will then continue to go back to being, I am a conscious man. Um, but choosing your mindset, you know, it's uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Is, he said, you can have everything taken from you, but this, your ability to choose your mindset in any situation. It's a paraphrase, but, um, and I think that when you know that you can choose your mindset, you get to also understand that you get to choose somewhat your level of suffering, certainly your level of mental suffering. And in Buddhism, they teach that most suffering comes from wishing something was different. So acceptance, Rick Hansen the, writes a lot about this in his books about acceptance as the door to resiliency um, because you have to get grounded in reality um, in that process. You have to be like, this fucking sucks um, and then decide what you're gonna do. Um, so what, when uh, it's kind of a sub question to this is when have you had to correct a mindset where you thought you had the right mindset? And then, you know, you know, like Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> you know, when did you have to like adjust your mindset when, even though you thought you were right? Well, as a twice divorced young woman and I'm young at 38, but young, young, yeah. um, I had to adjust my mindset about my approach to partnerships because I realized I was trying, I was trying to influence the partnership. I was trying to influence the whole, which mm -hmm. meant both myself and my partner. Right. And as you just explained, your only, your only control is over how you react to things. You mm -hmm. cannot control how someone else reacts. You cannot control what they say to you. You can only control how you react to it. And so I had to shift from, I am, you know, I'm the perfect wife or I am a great wife mm -hmm. to something that's a little closer to the truth, which is I, I, am, I am a partner who loves and respects her partner. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and then I don't have to, I, it takes, first of all, it gets rid of that, that P word, the perfect, because mm -hmm. that's not going to, <laughs> lead yeah. to any kind of successful resolution right. and then it's you know it, it falls back on those truths those fundamental truths you know I go through some I go through life as someone who loves people and you know for better or worse like I love them every every single person I've ever been with every terrible relationship that's ended um because as you mentioned I've been through some stuff you know I, I had a, a boyfriend kill a dog and I had to have the sheriff come out and help remove me from the situation. I got a restraining order. You know, I know what that's like. Mm. And I still hold love for that person because that, that person had my love at one point. And so that's never going to go away. Mm. So how do you move on when you've loved someone and something terrible happens and you have to break from them? Mm -hmm. You know, where does the love go? Well, the love doesn't have to go anywhere. The love can stay as part of who you are as a person. I'm a person who loves, mm -hmm. you know? And it's interesting because this week, that same person five years later reached out to me for their own closure. And it's, 
you know, here I am willing to have a 30 minute conversation with him because my love is still there. I don't love him. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be with him, but as another human doing the best he can on this planet, you know, there's, there's an element of, okay, yeah, let's, let's shepherd you through this journey. Yeah. I mean, that's super mature of you and it takes a long time. You know, us alphas, we resentment tastes better than forgiveness <laughs> and for a long, for a while until it doesn't. And um, I don't know. I, I find myself like when I'm in lower self state or lower conscious state, like kind of vacillating between people controller and people pleaser. And I, and I don't want to be either of those things. Um, I, I want to just be me. And I think the biggest mind shift, mindset shift for me, and this seems to, I mean, I'm always working on something, but was that I thought that it was acceptable to sacrifice a core part of yourself in order to make a relationship work. I thought that was part of the deal, that it was a net sum. Like, here's all the good things. Here's the things that aren't good. The things that are good are more. So the net sum, even though it costs me my, you know, my, you know, a huge part of myself to, to, and when I realized that I, I had that, I went into, um, into like thinking about my next relationship with this standard that I will, I was, I was said, I'm going to be, if I'm celibate forever, I'm not going to lower my standards. And that standard was that I wasn't going to need to modify a core part of myself in order to be in partnership with somebody. And um, I think that was a huge mindset shift that led to, you know, meeting Virginia and a very different life than I had a couple of years ago. So um, the last question is kind of said in humor, but also because I think it's interesting is what's the worst advice you've ever received? Because one thing you notice about when you struggle and you have struggles and you, we post about them on social and, you know, we, 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 you, you and I are both pretty transparent about the shit we've been through. And then you get so much advice from people and most of it's useless. Some of it's funny, but I'm curious, what's the worst advice you've ever gotten? The worst advice I've ever gotten. Do you want to know what's funny is I can't recall it. I can get, I can rattle off like 10 little nuggets of great advice that I got. I cannot mm-hmm. recall the worst advice I've ever gotten because I'm pretty sure I didn't even pick it up. <laughs> like your filter blocked it. Yeah. It's like, I just, I instantly recognized it. It was like, well, that's not useful. Yeah. Interesting. I'm trying to, I'm trying to rack my brain on this one. I've been, I've been thinking this over, but. What's the worst advice you've ever given yourself? What's something you tried to oh, talk yourself in? That I can answer. So okay. the worst advice I've ever given myself is just go with it. And the reason that's the worst advice is because it's been used in situations where I was being hurt, you know, on whatever level, physically, emotionally, mm-hmm. what have you. And it, it was, you know, don't rock the boat, just go with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can, you can handle this. That's the other advice, worst advice I've ever given myself. And also that anyone's given me to circle all the way back to the very beginning is right. you can handle this. Yeah. I don't want to handle it though. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if I can, yeah. I absolutely can handle it. I can handle having a leg chopped off. Doesn't mean I want to. Yes. 
And it's similar to the, you know, I do like the phrase it is what it is, but when is when it is what it is, is used as is, it's where it's resiliency disguised, a resignation disguised as resiliency. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, that's uh, super unhealthy. Um, or like, just go with it, like you said, or let that shit, let go, let it go. Uh, yes, that's true, but it has its own process. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of that whole toxic positivity thing, good vibes only. And it's all fucking delusional is what it is. Um, and so I think the worst advice I've ever received was to not trust my heart. Oh, um, and that the heart, you know, this is growing up in a fundamentalist church. And I started talking about listening to my heart. I would get like text messages from the church people saying, oh, the heart is a wicked thing and don't trust the heart and blah, blah, blah. And I I was thinking like every single time I've listened to conviction, some conviction, something ended and something started. When I didn't listen to conviction, nothing ended and nothing started. And, And so it's being willing to handle the pain of something ending in order to make room for something starting that comes from listening to your heart. And I think that's why the book, The Alchemist was so resonant with me. It's like, this is about following your heart to find this treasure. And what if we all did this? Um, And, you know, even within the, you know, I do believe, and I'm kind of with Mark Manson and Ryan Holiday on this related to like, I I don't say like, find your passion. Uh, Passion's a fickle mistress. Find find your purpose. Mm -hmm. But you find your purpose by following your heart, in my opinion. Um, and the best advice I've ever given myself is do not trust your mind. Um, do not trust your mind as a trauma survivor and someone with ADHD, my mind is wrong 99% of the time. And, and I've always listened to my mind and ignored my heart. And now I'm going radically the other way. And some things are some, some things ended and beautiful things started because of that. So, oh, I love that. Yeah. There's a, a concept that you might be familiar familiar with is called radical acceptance. Yes. And it's, I'm going to paraphrase it and I'm going to do it badly, but it's basically the idea that radical acceptance doesn't mean you accept things the way they are because you're okay with it. You accept the situation because you can't change it. Right. And I think a lot of the, the friction that we bump up against and the anxiety that we encounter is because we're trying to anticipate or change or modify or what have you, the situation. And there's this great quote from Mark Twain that I'm also going to butcher. And it's something along the lines of, I'm an old, I'm an old man who has known many troubles, many of which never happened. That's actually Montaigne. Not Was Twain. it? Yeah, oh. Henry Montaigne, yeah. I have that quote. I on, love I that one. Called The Work. And it's all of the work I do with therapy. I keep track of my notes from therapy in this. And at the top, it has that quote. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. That's another one of my favorite ones, yep. you know, and then, you know, worrying about something before it's happened means you get to suffer through it twice. That's another that's one. Right. Of, yeah. Because yes, and, absolutely. As someone with ADHD, I have struggled with anxiety. I was so bad. It was misdiagnosed as depression. Yes. Same. It was, it was incapacitating. I would just curl up in a ball in my little paralysis analysis. Yes. And so now it's, it's just the best advice I can give myself every day is, do I need to worry about this? Can I let it go? My, my, uh, my current mantra is related to just being, being, be in this, be, this is it. This is the only reality that exists. 
And I also give, as with ADHD, I give myself permission to, to have, to, to be more of a sheepdog, which is it's to do the perimeter check, to check in on my partner and my sons and my, and my health and the people I love and all of that. And there's a level of okayness that comes through radical acceptance. Um, and there's sort of, um, it's kind of like when you meet people that are in recovery, they've, you know, have had a, a long stint of recovery and they had like a lot watch um, Steve-O from Jack Jackass and how different he is and more real he is as a person that's in recovery. And there's a quiet humility to people that have been through shit. And I think that, you know, I don't want to go out and seek out suffering. Um, I'm not afraid of pain. I'm more afraid of emotional pain than physical pain, but I, I know that this process of, of pain being a door um, to, or, or, or struggle or um, challenge being a door is always a door. It's always going to open to something else. Um, and to me, that's what faith is. It's that faith is this idea that no matter what I've been through, there is another side to this valley. So mm -hmm. anyway, that was fun. Thank you. You, uh, you're always inspirational and I'm grateful that we're part of each other's stories. Likewise.